0: Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. Today's interview is with Kelly Shackelford. Kelly is the president and CEO of the First Liberty Institute, which is the nation's largest legal firm dedicated to exclusively protecting all Americans' religious freedom. In 1997, Kelly founded First Liberty with the goal to defend religious freedom in the courts and in the public arena. Under his leadership, First Liberties' legal team has participated in cases before the United States Supreme Court, Federal Court of Appeals, Federal District Courts, and various state courts, where they have won an incredible 90-plus percent of their cases. Kelly is a constitutional scholar and has argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, testified before the U.S. House and Senate, and has won a number of landmark First Amendment and Religious Liberties cases. Real quick before we get started, our team has a training coming up that you may be interested in. I'll share more details in a little bit, but for now, on to the show. Welcome to the show, Kelly.
1: Happy to be on, Trevor. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I'm excited to have you on this show, and one of the things I've found fascinating um, getting to know you is the business model of First Liberty. Can you talk to us about how you started First Liberty and how your approach is different from many of the other legal defense organizations?
1: Well, as far as starting it, I mean, I just uh, was analyzing my own gifts uh, growing up and knew I had gifts in analytical thinking and speaking. And I thought, well, golly, I either need to be a pastor or a lawyer. And uh, people were like, oh, that's kind of a God or Satan choice, (laughs) isn't it, to be a pastor or a lawyer? Right. And uh, I, I thought law was more my calling. I thought I'd do better. Uh, uh, at that and that was more what I should do. And I, and I went, got out and uh, really had a passion to, you know, I remember I, I you finish a clerkship, you clerk for a federal judge after a year, you can kind of go work at any of the big law firms and I had all those offers and uh, just felt like I would suffocate there because I felt like that's what wasn't what I really wanted to do. And so I, I remember thinking to myself, what do you want to do? I thought, well, I want to use my legal skills because I think I've been shown I should do that, but I want to help, you know, pastors, churches, religious freedoms, our founding principles. And I'd even like to go to seminary part-time and I laughed because there was, there was no job like that. And, uh, two weeks later, two guys called me out of the blue. I'd never met the partners at big law firms and they said, look, we started donating our time for religious freedom, but we're getting so many calls. It's hurting our ability to make a living. So we were wondering, would you be willing to come on, do legal cases, help pastors, churches, religious freedoms, and our founding principles. And you can even go to seminary part-time if you want to. And, uh, that was 30 years ago. And, uh, that's, that's what got me started. Really. The job was created that did not exist (laughs) before. And it was the very thing I was wanting to do. And so we started doing religious freedom work when people had no idea how bad it was going to get. And, um, Uh, the model, which you're asking about is very different. And that is, um, you know, I knew a lot of attorneys, uh, the, the two guys that invited me to get involved in all this. And so I, I, we started and did things a little differently. Um, your average nonprofit legal group has the same model, which is, um, raise as much money as you can raise, hire as many attorneys with that money as you can, then put those attorneys in an office in DC or New York or LA or somebody, and, and then fly them around the country and cover as many of those issues that you deal with as you can, whether you're left wing, right wing, or whatever, that's the model. Mm-hmm. That's not our model. Um, our model is there's all these, these lawyers, uh, who went to law school, people of faith who went into law school because of their faith and, you know, wanted to stand for what was right. Wanted to make a difference, wanted to ride in on the white horse and save the day with a saber and, uh, 30 years later, these are now the best litigators at the best law firms in the country, and they've done honorable work for their clients, but they've never gotten to do a case for their faith or their country. And so what we do is we sit down with all those best of the best, and we say, look, if uh, we give you everything you need, are you willing to give your time on one of these big cases? And they're like, man, I've been waiting 35 years. You know, Sign me up. And we know what's going to happen when we give them that first case. I mean, it's literally the first time in their life where all their talent, their gifts, their training, uh, everything they've learned is lined up with their faith and their love for their country. And they've never felt that before. And so it's kind of unfair in some ways, but we now know we have them for the rest of their lives as one of our network attorneys, because they're going to have to do another one of these. It's just too fulfilling. And they give cover to the younger attorneys because they're the big partners. And then the younger attorneys that have those same, you know, uh, uh, passions, et cetera, they get to, to get involved. And once they taste, they're not gonna go back either. So, um, you know, we, we have, from all the major law firms across the country, we have the best litigators in the country that are each really saying, please put me on a team. And uh, so when litigation pops up all over the country, which it does, we can put together a team in really a short a matter of time, and it's really a dream team of great lawyers And it's meaningful to them, uh, because they get to work on something they really care about. Uh, But it means our clients get the best attorneys in the world, and it means that the precedents we set, um, you know, are going to protect the whole country. And as you mentioned earlier, it means that we have a high, high, high win rate uh, above 90%. And really what we're doing, Trevor, is we're doing what every major corporation does, which is, if you're... You know, Ford Motor Company, and you're in Detroit, Michigan, and you're sued in Texas. You don't send your Detroit attorneys to Texas. You get the best law firm, the best litigators in Texas to defend you, and they combine with your attorneys, your general counsel from uh, uh, Detroit. And that's, we're the only ones that really are doing that, which is no matter where our lawsuits are. Our teams are the best attorneys in the country at the best law firms, really not only the country, the world that are in those communities that know those judges that know the community, that know the jury pools. And that's the reason why, you know, we've got the, they're the best number one. And number two, this is where they're in their own locale. And so that's why we have such a high win rate and uh, it's, it's sort of a win, 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 right? It's a win for them because they get to, to use their skills in a way that's really meaningful. It's a win for the clients because they get mm-hmm. the best attorneys in the world. And it's a win for everybody because those precedents uh, really protect everybody's freedoms across the country.
0: Right. Wow. And did you start out with that business model? or Is that kind of what you evolved to as you looked at kind of how big corporations did it? Or how did you come about deciding um, on this? Because it's really seems seen, to scale. Yeah,
1: I, I had seen some some groups, I'd, I'd seen a number of the groups doing things and I felt like this was the best way. Um, and uh, it had to be perfected a little bit. Um, you know, I, I worked through numerous attorneys doing this and until I learned the sort of the, how to, how to exactly do it. Um, and uh, once we kind of got that down, uh, it's clearly in our view, it's the best way to do it and it leads to the best results. So, but it was something at the very beginning partly because I was, I was watching different ways that I'd seen some people do these things. And partly because I really had a heart for these attorneys. There's so many of these attorneys who are litigators, Litigation's is a tough life. You're always in a fight. You're always in like 50 fights going on at the same time. And it's very wearing. And I, I felt you know bad for those people. They never get to work on something that's really, really meaningful to them. And so that was a way, too, is to, uh, you know, get them back in, get them to use their, their great skills on something they really have a passion for. And so it was a, kind of a combination of trying to do it the best way and also involving some of these great attorneys who were really burning out because they weren't getting to work on things they really cared about.
0: And so one of these attorneys, like one of your model attorneys, how many cases will they help you on in, say, a decade?
1: Um, gosh, It depends. Uh, you know, we just had one of our, uh, probably most active, um, network attorneys just became a federal, uh, court of appeals judge for the rest of his life. But I would say he was doing two or three cases a year, Oh wow, uh, major cases, but that, you know, we try to, what we try to do is let's say we give somebody a big case at one of the big law firms and it's not just the lead attorney, they might have four or five other attorneys working with them on the case. And what happens a lot is, well, they'll work really hard. They'll give their time over, you know, a couple of years, you know, maybe even four or five years and win some big case. And uh, then we'll, we'll say, well, let's give them, you know, six months off. I mean, they just gave a lot of time, you know, before we right. even bring another possibility to them. And what we find is they're calling us saying, hey, hey, we saw you just gave this other case, to this other firm. And They're like, <laughs> why didn't you give that to us? And, uh, and I was like, well, man, you guys just burnt, you know, through, you know, years of, you know, maybe a, a half million dollars of your time and all And they said, no, 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 we, we're, we're ready. I mean, this really feeds us. This really uh, energizes us. So, you know, give us the next one you see that's really good. So, you know, a lot of times they don't want to stop, uh, even though we're trying to give them a little bit of a break after a bunch of work on a case.
0: Right, well, and it helps that lawyers tend to be hyper competitive, you know, so you don't get to be the top uh lawyer at a law firm by uh not having a competitive spirit like that
1: amen, that's exactly right they 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 uh you know they're passionate people, they give their time you yeah, know there's a lot of lawyer jokes right but these these are lawyers that are giving their time for free I mean they can be working uh you know making money, putting money in their pocket, and instead they they have a passion for these issues of freedom, uh, and they're given it themselves. So there's a there's a lot of great people out there,
0: right? And what better way to use their skills than exactly what you know they're best at? Can you talk to Let's us see. a little bit about the uh, Supreme Court victory you guys had at the beginning of this summer?
1: Yeah, there's uh, it's the Bladensburg Peace Cross case. Uh, it's called the official name is the American Legion versus um, the American Humanist Association. And what this was was a veterans memorial that was put up almost 100 years ago by mothers who lost their sons in World War I and by the American Legion. It was actually uh, put up to honor 49 young men who had given their lives uh, in the war in World War I that lived in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is right outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, if you know much about World War I, the way it was a brutal war, I mean, over 14 million dead and in America you were getting these pictures back it was all you knew and the people were dying so quickly that they were just slapping up crosses and stars of David just immediately on top of these, you know, makeshift graves. And the pictures that came back were just row upon row upon row for as far as you could see of these crosses. And, uh, and so that became somewhat of the image of, uh, what people saw and what people associated with the war, the sacrifice. And so the, uh, the mothers and the American Legion in Prince George's County decided uh, to put up, as you'll see all over the, all over the world, the symbol for, uh, those men who died, they put up a, a large, uh, cross. Um, and it, it was on American Legion land and it sat there for a number of years. By the way, it had like a, a, a nine foot wide four and, or two and a half foot up and down plaque on it that mentioned, uh The people who had died, the the 49 men from Prince George's County, and it had a lot of other things on it, Valor, and had the American Legion symbol. It it sat there for a number of years. And what happened is, since it was outside of D.C., is the uh, Maryland ended, I mean, uh, D.C. ended up, you know, building roads around it. And as they did, uh, the state eventually took over the land to control health and safety and those kinds of things with traffic. And then about 30 or so years later, the American humanists came along and say, hey, wait, you got this this big cross and it's on government land. And so they filed a lawsuit saying this was a violation of the Establishment Clause and that you can't have crosses on government land and has to be torn down. Uh, We won that case at the district court preserving this uh, Veterans Memorial and uh, then at the Court of Appeals. Uh, we got an adverse decision. In fact, one of the judges said, why don't we just cut the arms off the cross? That way um, we don't have to tear it down yet. Nobody will be offended. Of course, a lot of people were very offended by that idea. Right. And uh, so I went to the Supreme Court and uh, we didn't just argue for a win. Um, we, we said, not only should this uh, Bladensburg cross be upheld, but really all of these attacks that have been going on against crosses and stars of David menorahs. And really that should stop. We shouldn't even be here before the court. And the only reason we're here is because of a, a, a case from 50 years ago called the lemon case. And, uh, it had created sort of an approach that the court was taking where anytime there was sort of a religious symbol on government property, the government would like, you know, be encouraged to tear it down. And, we said that's not what the, the Establishment Clause says. The Establishment Clause is not is about not establishing a national church and not coercing people with regard to their religion. We said you really need to get rid of Lemon. And uh, that's essentially, you know, it's a pretty bold thing to do. I mean, we were kind of, instead of going for a bunt single win, we were going for the Grand Slam. And uh, in June, uh, the court issued its decision. It was fairly fractured. It was seven to two in some places and six to three in other places and five four in other places. But uh the the sum is that uh they upheld the Bladensburg Veterans Memorial. It is not gonna be coming down. And they said that we're not even applying lemon because this lemon case is really so problematic that it's really not even useful. And they said from now on, we're gonna consider all these memorials and and longstanding practices that we've had in this country, like prayer before meetings and all the other stuff, we're going to consider all those things presumptively constitutional so that there's not lawsuits against everything that they see that's a religious symbol or something. There's nothing wrong with there being religious and secular symbols across the country. And so it created a presumption in a very different direction. And uh, I think we'll stop a lot of the attacks that we've been seeing against veterans memorials Uh, menorahs and and nativity scenes and, you know, all these types of things that we're seeing. So it was a pretty significant change, about 50 years of law going in one direction that we thought was bad that we think now is going to be going in a very good direction.
0: That's great. Well, and it's great, too, that you took, you know, a specific case and went for that, as you said, um, Grand Slam, you know, so you can have that be precedent across the country. That's really incredible. And what a great win for religious freedoms. So just shifting gears a little bit, like incredible story on how you guys started your business model, but you guys are also really innovative in how you fundraise and how you find new major donors. Um, and on this show, we like to dive deep and talk about specific fundraising strategies that are working today with nonprofits. Um, can you explain your event strategy, how it works and how you, you've used it to identify new major donors?
1: Yeah. Um, when I've, you know, I guess I've, I've heard all the typical things about, you know, fundraising and how to find new supporters. And, um, and, you know, if, if you, if you listen and it's probably true, but if you listen to what the experts tell you, probably the most effective way with major donors is, is your one-on-one meetings. Right. Mm-hmm. And then maybe second is, uh, uh maybe it's a, a phone call or, uh, You know, and then next, maybe it's a letter or an email and sort of way down the list. Usually at the bottom is like uh, some meeting, you know, with 50 people or with 100 people or with uh, 25 people. And so early on, I had some some meetings where somebody would say, you know, I'd like to hold a little deal in my house. Some, you know, major supporter of ours. And I'd like to bring, you know, maybe 10 couples and listen, because I don't think they know about all these battles that are going on and what you guys are doing. And I said, sure. And so I would do that. And it's very valuable because they're pre-clearing people for you. I mean, these are major donor people, and so they tend to hang with people at their level. And so these are people with capacity. And they're people that they've already pre-cleared that they think will be philosophically, they don't know for sure, but they think will be philosophically aligned with the mission. And so they're doing a lot of the work that normally you might have to go meet with person after person after person to figure out and find the person that has both the capacity and the connection philosophically with what you're doing. And so I thought that's great. Right. And and but what happened was people would come. Uh, they would, you know, they, they would fill out, you know, we would have a, where they could fill out a card if they wanted to be involved or whatever. And, you know, a decent number would fill out cards, but nothing would happen. And really, it, you know, what I was told at the time was, well, that only really works if you're willing to then spend the time to go back and meet with any of the individuals that sort of selected that they're very interested in, in, in what you did. And so, you know, that's something where I kind of dropped the ball, but that I, so I, I almost gave up on the doing event strategy. But then what happened is one of my board members, uh, came to me, um, just really out of the blue once and said, you know, I want, let's go, let's go have, uh, you know, some coffee. Cause I want to tell you something. And he said, you know, I'm, I've been trying to figure out what I could do for my country. You know, I didn't serve in the military. I didn't, And I really feel like I know what it is. And I said, what's that? And he said, I'm going to help first Liberty meet people. And I said, okay, that sounds great. You know, this is one of our major donors. Right. He said, you know, I, I, uh, do business around the country. Uh, I have a home in you know, not only in, in where I'm from, but I also have one in Vail and I have another one in, uh, Palm Springs and, and I've got friends all at these places. So I'm just going to have you, uh, you know, whole little event, in our home. And we're going to invite, you know, and get like maybe 15 or 20 couples and they're going to be the right couple, kind of couples. And, and then you're going to meet them. And then you're going to find out that some of them lived in a lot of different places and they're going to take you back to their place. And I said, okay, and let's give it a try. And uh, it just really uh, was very, very successful. Um, unlike uh, what I mentioned originally, we actually had people making gifts on the spot the first time. I mean, again, it's not the major, it's just a sign. I think, I mean, mm-hmm. for instance, if you, I think we had 40 people in his home and I bet we had, you know, a, a $10,000 gift, you know, three or four $5,000 gift, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which in the past, usually you don't get much of a gift. It's just kind of connecting and finding out who's in, but this time we were actually getting gifts and so that was nice. Um, but the bigger thing was we were beginning to sort of spread a network. And so a number of those people said, Hey, you know, I'd like you to come. I'd like to do this in my house. I've got a whole different set of friends and I think they would want to know about this. And, and so we did that. And they you know, the great thing about this is these are major, major donors. And so they like to have access. They like to be able to ask questions. Mm-hmm. And so we did a Q and a and all that and talked about, you know, after the presentation, And it just sort of led to home event after home event in a lot of very large homes uh, and some, you know, spreading around the country uh, until uh, we got enough people uh, in, let's just take Palm Springs. We had enough people that had hosted something in their home or really behind what what we were doing that we had enough to to do like a, a dinner or a luncheon. So I think we had maybe 20 uh, people who were willing to be what we call table host. Um And we didn't charge, the way we do our tables is we didn't charge for the tables. We just say, look, you, you're you already giving us, you know, a, a lot of support and we just want you to be a table host. We want you to fill a table with like-minded people that you think would be really good for First Liberty.
0: And these are your and, existing donors you're asking to do that, correct?
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, And so... And sometimes, you know, there'll be those some people who are who are givers and there's some people who are connectors. Mm -hmm. You know, they um, they don't necessarily have a lot of resources, but they know all the people who do and they love to get them involved in great things. And so that mixture of people, I think the first time we had, I feel like it was maybe 20 or so um, that was on our steering committee that said, we'll each do a table. And, you know, they were telling me. You know, we're gonna get three hundred people at this first event. And I'm like, oh come on. You know, we've never had an event out here. Three hundred is a little much right. of a goal for the first <laughs> event. Well, we had almost six hundred people show up. Wow. And it, it was because we had laid the groundwork for a number of years with people doing these in their homes. We had enough where we had enough, you know, table uh captains that they could invite other people. And sometimes they would invite so many they would fill two tables and uh and so it, it developed an event that is one of our really great events. And we've done that in other places. We've done that. Um, and and we do luncheons. Um, there's sort of two different events we do. One is dinners, uh, as far as the big events. One mm-hmm. is dinners and one is luncheons. The luncheons, we're much more careful with our time on. Uh, we try to get in and out in an hour and 10 minutes wow, so that people fast. can know every year that – they they can leave work they can come they can have lunch they can hear a really engaging presentation that's very non-stop and exciting and then they know we're going to let them out in an hour and 10 minutes so they can go back to work um the result of that is we 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 have really good attendance year in and year out and uh, we do those in uh the sort of areas where we started where we have enough where we could do those and uh so we've done those in, like, we started in Texas as a group, so we've got those in in, in Dallas and in Fort Worth and in, in Houston and, and all that. But in other areas, you know, that's what we're aiming for eventually to have enough table hosts that are doing it for free, but they're inviting their friends uh, that we can actually do a luncheon or an event, you know, when we get to the numbers that are large enough. And when we do get to those events, um, what I would say, at least for us, is a normal, um, good response from an event where you have 200, 300, 400, 500, whatever, uh, is we end up averaging um, for a moderately decent event, a good event, um, about $1,000 a person in gifts and pledges. Wow. So if we can get the right people there. And it's not just filling tables because they cost you money, right? It mm-hmm. might cost you $50 a person uh, for the, the food and the, you know, the, the room and all that, but it's getting the right people, uh, there in the room. Uh, and again, that's what your table hosts are so, so important. And uh, they know how to get the, the right people, people that, you know, are friends of theirs that have similar philosophy and capacity. And, uh, it works out really well. We've had some that have gone way above that. Some that have gone below that, but that's sort of our standard is, Maybe only one out of every five people will say, hey, I want to give, I want to get involved. But when you add it all up, it, it averages out, uh, for us at least, to a, a normal good event to about $1,000 a person in gifts or pledges.
0: Wow. It's such a clever strategy because you're signaling so much to your donors. Like with a luncheon that lasts 70 minutes and you start and you finish right on time and have you know, a whole presentation where you talk about all the good work you're doing. Like, that's not only signaling to your existing donors what a good job you're doing, but showing off the charitable work that they give to, to their peer group and their friends. It's a really clever strategy. I'd like to unpack a couple of the things you just talked about and just put, just dive a little deeper on them. So when you talked about Palm Springs and that you first started with these small group, like, in-house meetings, and then that kind of spread. How long was it from those initial, you know, early meetings till the time you did your first major dinner or luncheon?
1: I think it was uh, four years. Um, and again, it was never the plan mm-hmm. that that's what we were going to do. It was just sort of, you know, we finally had enough where it was like. And plus, if you let's say you go to somebody's house, and then let's say next year they want to do it again and invite some other friends, well, you you sort of run out of you know, uh, people don't want you coming back and doing the same thing every year. So the, eventually we got to the point where we had all these people who had done things in their home and they said, we're ready for a bigger event. And, uh, but it took about four years, you know, at least for us, it's just a matter of how many people come to those and how many people say I'm interested. And then how many people then say, I'd like to host one of these. And, uh, and once you get to the numbers where you feel like you have, you know, 15 or 20, I think at least people who think they can fill a table of 10 easily, then I think you're ready to, you know, to try to go to the next step.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you guys bring in a special speaker for that or is it done by like you're the speaker or your staff does the presentations or how do you handle that?
1: Um, we, we do um, not you know, when we're in somebody's home. No, mm-hmm. but when we go to the bigger events, um, because again, people don't want I mean, they, they like hearing about what's going on in your group. There's also though a little bit of extra in in hearing from somebody differently that that in our view we we always try to pick somebody who connects to what we're doing, so we'll have a different sort of guest every year, and what we're doing right now, at least for them at the dinners and stuff is we're I'm interviewing them instead of them giving a speech on something we just talk to them and let them talk about uh you know what they do and and even connecting it, especially to religious freedom. And it's gone really well because people do like the variety, even though they know they're going to hear an update on the ministry that they support or the you know, nonprofit they support. Um, it's adds a little extra uh, to make them want to come every year and, and not say, Oh, I've been keeping up with that. So I don't need to come. So we've, it's been, it's been helping us, I think, in attendance and uh, making sure we get everybody back and bringing their friends.
0: Right, and what's interesting about the whole you interviewing the guest versus like a keynote speech is you can avoid some of those challenges that you have where you bring in a new guest speaker every time and people go just to see the guest speaker. It's still connected to the mission, your organization. You're not getting that separation of the event might be a little different than the mission of the organization.
1: That's right, yeah. And we try to do that with who we invite Um so it's, it's worked, uh, the last few years. Cause we always, like you said, we didn't, what we didn't want is you get a big name, everybody comes in for the name, but then mm-hmm. they, they're not really there for your, for your mission. And that really hasn't happened, uh, with us at least, uh, because we've been connecting the, the speaker, you know, with, uh, the mission and asking them questions, but it's also been really interesting to hear from somebody different. I think, uh, I mean, we've, we've had, shannon bream who was on fox before Mm -hmm. she was kind of big uh we've had michelle bachman who was you know uh very well known i know Mm -hmm. ran for president and all that we had uh, dinesh d'souza and just different people that are interesting that people like to hear maybe a little bit about their life and and how they got involved and 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 then we always go into really just freedom and and where they where they are on those issues and what they see happening in the country
0: yeah that's great We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our upcoming seven-figure fundraising workshop this February 26th through 28th in Alexandria, Virginia. We'll be teaching the seven-figure fundraising system and how to grow your existing major donors and find new ones. This is an intimate workshop where we limit it just to 24 people so you can have one-on-one coaching so you can leave feeling confident, knowing exactly what to say at your next donor meeting. Here's what some of our past attendees have said.
1: Best thing I've ever done. I am
0: so excited to have learned even more than I thought I could ever know. I've been reminded just how much I've forgotten about fundraising, about fundamental habits, developing consistency, thinking of new ways to attack the same problem. It's all covered in the seven-figure fundraising workshops. I recommend them highly. The coaching has been phenomenal, unlike anything I've been a part of in, in a dozen years of fundraising.
1: This workshop is crucial if you really want to grow your nonprofit. And it's worth the time, the energy, and the money because you're making a true investment into your nonprofit organization. And most importantly, into you, the person who's executing it. This is going to make my life a lot easier because now I have the tools necessary
0: to be more successful. To learn more, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com where you can sign up for the workshop or schedule a call with me to answer any questions you have about the workshop. I hope you'll join us in February. Now, back to the interview. Well, and so what do you do on the ask? So I know there's a lot of schools of thought on how you make an ask at an event, um, but how do you guys handle that at these prospect events where you have existing donors that you may ask already, you know, one-on-one in your meetings at their, you know, typical renewal time, but you're asking their friends, like, how do you handle that? Do you follow up afterwards or what do you do?
1: We actually have a big ask at the event, at the end. Um, and uh, we tried different ways. You know, the, the, usually people say it's better to have a peer do the ask. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, that might be if you got the right peer. But what we found is a lot of peers, you know, uh, they're, they're not comfortable doing that. And so you can ask them to do it, and they'll do it, but it's a little awkward for them mm-hmm. and so they don't do as good a job um And so what we've actually got is we've got somebody who who does you know at least for us we've got somebody who's who does this for some different groups across the country who does it for us. Uh, he works with us about half time and then he does the ask at these big events. and what we do is we have a card that is on everybody's table. And it just gives you the options, um, you know, whether you want to give, um, whether you want to give one time, you know, monthly, uh, whether you want to make a pledge over the next few years, uh, and then there's other options. Hey, I'd like to host an event, you know, myself and my community, um, uh, just however people want to be involved, you know, we give them those options and just lay those out. And then we just have them you know, write down what they want to do and they put them in an envelope and that gets put into a bigger envelope. And then we, uh, you know, follow through with anybody we need to follow through with. And what typically happens is we get a, a good response, uh, at the event. And then, uh, we get a, a, even more response after the event too. There are people who have their own foundations and things mm-hmm. that, um, you know, they're going to, do something the week or two after. And so what, what we found sometimes is that basically what happens that night might just be half of what is going to happen. And over the next four months or, or so, uh, it ends up doubling. Wow. And uh, that's just people, some people that want to go home and pray over it with their spouse, some people that have foundations they need to talk to and all this. But uh, so it can, it can be disappointing. Now, our luncheons, that we hold we usually see the response right there because they come every year they know it's a big it's our big luncheon and so they come I think more prepared to say here's what I'm going to do this year uh, and with their new people but uh, the the dinners uh, there's usually about half of those people are new and so uh, for a bunch of new people you know a lot of those are going to go home think about it and uh, and maybe you'll make a decision over the next few days so Uh, We love to get responses at night You have people who know what they're going to do, but there's a lot of uh, uh, increase that occurs after the event is over for these big sort of dinner events where a lot of the people
0: are new. And do you find the people who come in as major donors, do they typically give one-time gifts and you have to ask again? Or do they do the reoccurring option that you have? Or what do you find that mix to be?
1: I mean, there are some people that do recurring gifts and those are great because, right, I mean, they just keep happening and you don't have to uh, wonder or, or, you know, what's going to happen at the end of the year. This is just a person that's going to give every month. Uh, some people that do quarterly or whatever, but most people are more one-time givers, but I don't really mean one-time as this might be the only time they give in the year. Uh, most people that come to our events at least will say, here's a one-time gift, or they'll say, here's a pledge. I'm going to give you, you know, $5,000 now, but I'm also going to give you the same the next two years. So it's just kind of a mixture. Different people, I guess, different people like to do different things and like to follow a different approach. And so we see all that in uh, the responses. But I do like the idea of the pledges because it allows people to think more long term with us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hey, I like this. I want to be a part of this. Here's my plan over the next two to three years that's really nice to get. If you get it, you don't get it from everybody, but for those who do, you know, it's a neat uh, thing to have. Now we'll say this, it creates an extra complication, which we haven't talked about, which is what do you do with people who make pledges and, and, you know, get behind on the pledges. Right. Uh, and uh, so we're in the process now of trying to do that in a, in a gentle way, you know, where we can just call people and if they're really behind on their pledge and, and remind them, but say, Hey, what, you know, this is your pledge. You can adjust it. You can, you know, if you need, you know, but sometimes people are just, Oh my gosh, you know, I totally forgot, you know, so some people need to be reminded. Some people don't, some people have things going on, but it does create an additional follow through um, with them that has to be handled well. Uh, if you just sent people a letter, um, which way back, I sent people a letter to kind of remind them and uh, it didn't offend everybody, but it offended some people. Right. Right. <laughs> So, uh I learned at that point don't do that and uh, so now with certainly with all of our major donors you know we, we just circle back around if somebody's way behind and, and just you know sometimes we find out there's financial situations and we say do not let this bother you you know kick it off four years from now or you know change it or however you want to do because you know you did, at least you take that pressure off of them we don't want them to feel pressure uh, if something's happened and then sometimes again it's just they didn't remember. And, and they, they're glad that you reminded them because that's something they wanted to do is fulfill what they said and and they love being involved. So it's, that isn't an extra thing from the pledges that you don't have with the others that is a little more complicated.
0: Right. And do you do that follow up via phone call or do you do it with in-person meetings or how do you handle that?
1: We usually do it during phone call. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So now if you're having a, a a regular meeting with somebody, it's easy to mention, you know, in the process. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're doing that, I mean, it's something you could look at, but most of the time, because let's say we're doing a, you know, uh, that sort of review in let's say September, because we want to want people to have the time between then and the end of the year, if they didn't remember, Uh, then maybe you're not meeting with them in the next month or two. And so it's, it's, it's easier to just pick up the phone and catch up and, and make sure and go through it with them.
0: So, what do you do about donors? Say, I came to your event um, last year and gave money for the first time to First Liberty. How do you follow up with me for the next donation? What's your process like for that?
1: well, it's it's supposed to be, and that I mean, this is, I think the, probably one of the most important things that we haven't always done well because we just hadn't had enough people and we've been too busy mm-hmm. um, is what that's what should happen. You should have people show up. They should get excited about what you're doing. They they fill out a card and give a gift. And then I we believe that within, you know, 30 days, somebody should be meeting with them in person to get to know them. Uh, and we have not always done that well. we think it's been really dumb of us not to do well with that. It's just we had some, you know, we didn't have enough personnel and we had so many events going on that we just, you know, got right, to you're where we have scale we didn't do issues. That. Right. So, so it's, it's one of our priorities this year because that is exactly, I mean, you know, it's sort of like, I guess the normal way would be you go to a normal, you go to a major donor of yours and they say, here's a referral for you. Go, go meet this person. I think they'll be great. And you go and you, you know, you meet with them and you try to get them to get involved with you. Um, This is like an extra step of easy, right? I mean, they've come you've never even met them, but your, your major donor has sort of said, these are great people. I'm bringing them to my table and they've already given you a gift. Um, I mean, hello, you know, go sit down with them and find out what their passion is that really connects and start that relationship. But it's, it, to me, that, that should be like priority number one. Uh, and, uh, and it is something that you definitely should do. Uh, because you've got somebody who's already involved with you and then they don't really even know you personally yet.
0: Well, and that makes a lot of sense to try to get that done immediately while they're still fresh in their memory, your, you know, great presentation exactly. and all of that. Um, but you can see where, you know, you have 150, 200 people come to an event trying to meet, let's say 50% of them and 30 days afterwards, you can run into some scale issues. pretty Yes, quickly.
1: yes, <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So for listeners who want to try this strategy, or they're, you know, have done something like this, but maybe they've charged per table and done the traditional, you know, get a donor to sponsor a table and invite guests, like, how would you recommend they start out with this model of having their major donor um, sponsor a table for free and just fill it? Um, What type of scale size event would you recommend doing? And how, how, what should they be thinking about on this?
1: I would I would do as big of an, of an event as you can do. In other words, how many uh, major donors do you have that would be table hosts, table captains, that would be willing to do that if they knew, um, you know, it was something that they could do, that they were going to do that. And so if you have 25 or you have 30 or you have 10 or whatever, you know. You could always start with that and and try to do an event uh, to the scale of of the supporters that you have that are willing to fill tables. Um, You know, it's the way you could do it if you're changing. uh, And this is something that we did, at least in the beginning for our luncheons, is we had what was called the table captain luncheon. That was a smaller luncheon just for our table captains and it was sort of we gave them some inside info and stuff that wasn't mm-hmm. public and and all that and then we talked about the event and how it was going to work and how what what they were expected to do and we had a little packet for them and everything so that's one way if you want to transition
0: and you did that the day of the event those lunches no we did oh, it really? like
1: you know 2 months before uh, so that we could sit down with them and they could know what's coming and it was sort of refreshed their ooh i got to go get my table filled Uh, And, uh, and it was a way for us to give them anything they needed to do that. And so that's one way you can do it. I'm not saying you have to do it that way. We've now, we don't do those as much anymore because we, we kind of have our, our table captains kind of know what they're doing. And the new ones, we explain to them and we have a, a good process and materials and things to help them see how to do that. Plus we've We've, we've got a system online now where people can sign up and they can fill their table really easily just by sending a link. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but that's one way you can do it. If you're changing, sit down with the people who are your table hosts and say, Hey, we're doing something new. Here's what we're going to do. How many of you guys are in? And, uh, and you know, I, I, we actually did that recently. Um, we had not held a luncheon in a particular city and we had, uh, sort of two or three really gung-ho people for us out there. And they got a bunch of other people to come. And I think we had maybe 30 uh, uh, come and I did a little presentation kind of like I would do at the event. Mm-hmm. And at the end, we just said, this is just to see who wants to be a table host or table captain and fill your tables. Um, and we had like 30 people at that event. And I think we had more than 30 commitments for tables because some people said I'm doing two. Wow. And wasn't even expected because we didn't ask for money. Uh, We gave them cards where they could fill out so they could get on our mailing list and all that. And one guy at that table host event, totally unsuspecting to us, uh, dropped a check for a hundred thousand dollars. So, you know, you never know. Sometimes, you know, the the table host is a little more special. Um, It's not even for everybody. It's just for your top people and sometimes things will happen out of that. Uh, and and so if you're doing something new, that might be a way to go. I mean, it, it does result in some surprises sometimes. Right. Plus, it nails down – what we're really trying to do there, of course, is nail down our table hosts to know we're going to have a good event, and we did. And it was a, it was a really good event for our first time. Uh, we had all these table hosts that uh, got great people there, and now we're going to have the second year this year, and it's just going to grow because people came – didn't know about us. Now they want to do a table because they've got friends that they'd like to to bring, uh, and, uh, and come and see about something that they're really proud to be a part of.
0: Right. It's such a clever idea doing the luncheon with your table host ahead of time, like giving them time to think about it, you know, prioritize and think about who they're going to invite and you're have that gap of 60 days, you know, two months where they can go do it. And Plus, if you get a hundred k donation, like it makes it all the yeah. much, you know, that much oh, better.
1: That's oh, amazing. yeah, that wasn't expected, but uh, th- it's happened a few times. It's just there's sometimes you'll have really big people, and maybe they make it to the table host luncheon, but they're not going to make it to the luncheon because they mm-hmm. just they've got a conflict, and so that's kind of what's happened a couple of times.
0: Right. Well, and you're reminding them too of all the good work you're doing. You're giving the mini presentation. Like there's lots of stuff going on, furthering their commitment to your organization, and their buy-in with all the work you guys are doing. So I want to be conscious of time and we're wrapping up, but I just want to ask what's a challenge you'd put to listeners um, who have listened to the show, think this is an interesting idea. What's a challenge you'd want them to do to go try this out?
1: You know, I would say start small, you know, um, try find somebody who you think is a real believer in your mission who knows other people you know and uh, and and see if they want to do a little thing you know in their home uh, with maybe again maybe it's ten couples or or fifteen couples uh, now the thing you can do with that too is sometimes these days people are so busy that you might have to invite fifty couples to get ten or fifteen. <laughs> So sometimes there'll be maybe three couples that co-host the event at one couple's home and, you know, pick a house that's really interesting that people would love to come see or whatever, however you want to do it. But I would try there first, get people into somebody's living room, do a presentation. Again, as you guys talk about, it's not like you have to change up your presentation. You should have the same presentation you can make it you know shorter or longer, but, same basic elements mm-hmm. uh, in somebody's home or in a big event, do a presentation and then you allow that interaction of Q and A and have your response cards there um, and just see where it goes. Cause that's a good testing place uh, to see if people are interested um, once you get them there, that the difficulty in the smaller events is, is getting people there. Right. You know, cause it's just so busy and you have to invite a lot more people to get the number you get. But if you get them there and they respond well and people are excited, then you sort of got something that probably would, would be rec- replicable and that you could grow from.
0: And is there any rules of thumb on like how many people at a house event to invite to get, you know, 10 couples to attend? Would you recommend 30, 40? Like, is there, yeah rough numbers I think you're going to
1: need at least three or four times, probably the number. Uh, and uh, unless there's a real, there's a real catch. In other words, if you had like somebody that's like, Oh my gosh, everybody wants to be in their home. Right. Uh, and they invite and Everybody's going to say yes. And that's a, that's a different story. But normally people are so busy that you're going to have to invite more. And I would say this also, if you get above 20 couples, I think you're starting to get too many mm-hmm. um, because then it's less of that personal major donor having personal access, you know, to the head of the group, you know, and being able to ask direct questions, um, people start to disappear in the crowd once you get much more than I think 20 couples. But I think, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 couples is a great number. And again, assuming you've got the right kind of people in there, which that's your, your host, uh, will be responsible for that.
0: Mm -hmm. And then the next steps would be do two or three more of these events and then host a big one. That's what you'd recommend roughly.
1: Yeah. And again, that should be on your card. Hey, I'd like to host, you know, one of your choices on the card. And you, this is one of the things you say at the end, you know, hey, we'd love for you to get involved with what we're doing. We'd love for you to, to donate. We're a, you know, 501c3. But, you know, look at the back of the card. There are choices. We'd love for you to also, you say, I can host an event like this. We'll mark that down. and We'll talk to you about it. You know, you, so you give them those choices. And assuming that you have people say, I want to do this and you can spread out and spread out then uh, you continue to sort of, you know, expand your net uh, for folks to get involved and, and you can just keep going until you get to the point where you're good for doing an event at night or a luncheon or something bigger.
0: Yeah, there's so much great information. I wish we had more time, and maybe we can just bring you back uh, on another episode. Um, But just to wrap up, where can listeners find out more about you, Kelly, and First Liberty?
1: Easiest thing for us is just go to – you spell it out, firstliberty.org, firstliberty.org. And uh, there's everything there that people would want. as far as, uh, you know, all the cases we're involved in, uh, the media, I think we had 5,000 media interviews and stories we were in last year. So it's a pretty active site, and it's a, it's a great issue no matter what people's beliefs are. Religious freedom is our first freedom, and it's, it's the basis for all of our freedoms. And that's one of the fun things at these events. I've had people, Trevor, come up to me afterwards and say, look, I'm not a, I'm not a religious person. I don't believe, uh, you know, like you do. But I came from Czechoslovakia, and I saw this happen in my country. I saw them take down their religious symbols, and within two months, we all lost our political freedoms. And a guy handed me a check for $5,000 and said, I'm going to be involved in this from now on because religious freedom affects my political freedoms. And it's fun to do these events where you have a broad group of people where you get support from people across the board because everybody cares about freedom.
0: Wow. What an incredible story. Well, thanks for being on the show, Kelly. And it's always a privilege talking with you.
1: Thanks for having me, Trevor.
0: Thanks for listening. To learn more about seven-figure fundraising and our training, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com. Finally, if there's one person you know would benefit from hearing this episode, please take a minute and share it with them. Thanks.